So, welcome to this uh, session of the Son Retreat from a virtual Gaia house. This will be the third of my talks and also the last one. And I'm going to focus on what are called the Four Great Vows. Those of you familiar with Zen Buddhism uh, have probably also come across these from time to time. Some of you not, but I'm going to post them on the chat. There they are. Sentient beings are boundless. I vow to liberate them all. Defilements are inexhaustible. I vow to sever them all. Dharma gates are numberless. I vow to learn them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. In Zen monasteries uh, everywhere in the world, whether it be Japan or Korea or China or New Mexico, uh, these uh, vows are recited on a, on a daily basis. And they represent, as it were, a condensation of the ethic of the Bodhisattva, the person who aspires to practice not just for themselves, but that their lives may be of value to others. In Buddhist language, this would be attaining enlightenment in order to be of optimal service uh, to all sentient beings. But I'd like to think of them as another way of understanding the four tasks. Um, yesterday there was an outstanding question from Narayan Tulan who wondered why we said noble tasks and not average or bog standard or basic tasks. I don't actually use the uh, phrase noble task, although sometimes it might slip in as a kind of uh, echo of noble truths, but I prefer, like you suggest, to use a more, uh, use a more simple term like bog standard, for example. But these are just the four tasks. I think that's good enough. The vows are sometimes called the four great vows. But um, again, let's just stick with the four vows. That should be good enough. Now, if we just take a little bit of a back step, then you'll be aware that this idea of thinking of four tasks is an alternative to thinking in terms of four truths or four noble truths, which is for many Buddhist traditions, the foundational doctrine that underpins everything else. It's sometimes said that the four noble truths are the basis on which all subsequent Buddhist teaching can then be derived. And that may or may not be the case. The point though, is I find that by emphasizing the notion of truth, these uh, noble truths are caught in the business of making truth claims. They're claiming that these four propositions, life is suffering, the cause of suffering is craving, and so on, are basically metaphysical propositions. And as I pointed out yesterday, for figures like Dejan and other Zen masters, these would be uh, metaphysical propositions no different from any other such propositions like beliefs in God or beliefs in the Tao or beliefs in anything. And they 
should at least for the duration of one's uh, contemplative practice of what is this, they should be put to one side. When we're asking what is this, we are quite explicitly uh, parting company with claiming to know anything for certain, claiming to be uh, in possession of the truth. And we're turning this a bit on its head by then asking a question. And in this way, the truths disappear and instead we are confronted with a series of tasks to not to, to say that, not to believe that life is suffering, but to try to embrace suffering. Not to believe that the cause of suffering is ignorance and craving, but actually to let go of craving and so on. And what I think happens in the next step is that these tasks become crystallized as ethical commitments or vows. Now, many years ago, uh, a fellow teacher and friend, Gil Fronstein, who had been trained as a Zen monk um, uh, in America somewhere, um, suggested that the four vows might be connected to the four truths. And that idea has always been one that uh, has, has struck me. And I was teaching about this in a Zen center in Minneapolis some years ago, and I mentioned that. And then one of the audience uh, pointed out that, in fact, there is uh, a Zen teacher in America who says the same thing. And not only does he say that, he actually has found a passage in uh, an early Mahayana Sutra that is quite explicit about it. So that I found as a very good confirmation. Not that the vows have to do with the truths, because as you know, I'm not terribly interested in the truths. But if we think of these as tasks, then we can see how the vows make those tasks into uh, not just suggestions, things we might do or we'd like to do, but actually it turns them into commitments. Sentient beings are boundless. I vow to liberate them all. In other words, I'm going to take that as a commitment. That is something I deeply and passionately uh, hold to be worthwhile. They're no longer truth claims, but they are expressions of a heartfelt ethic to engage with uh, life uh, itself in the fullest uh, and the most wholehearted way that I can imagine. And in terms of what we were looking at yesterday, Dejan and his rather provocative comments about um, Buddhist orthodoxy, once again, these are not being, these comments are not being made just to debunk metaphysical claims for the fun of it, um, but are actually recognizing how as long as we're committed to certain truth claims, certain certainties, that actually can stand in the way of um, allowing ourselves to engage with the immediacy of the situations at hand which call upon us to respond. And this responsiveness, I think, is what is essential to the idea 
of these tasks. And likewise, um, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> uh, likewise, um, this practice um, is one that can be understood in, in a series of phases. Uh, and I, we went yesterday through the first two of these phases, uh, sent you, you know, the uh, idea of uh, what is this being a way with which we can engage with the question of life that is confronting us right now. But to be able to stand with an open, uh, undecided uh, sensitivity to the moral dilemma that may confront us, rather than already having preloaded certain uh, moral uh, uh, commitments that we just have to kind of repeat. Mustn't kill, mustn't steal, mustn't lie, mustn't do this, mustn't do that. Which can be a useful broad framework, but in the specifics of an ethical dilemma, um, those kind of precepts are never going to give us sufficient information to enable us to know what to actually do in the situations at hand. Um, and so this idea of the second task about uh, letting go of reactivity um, is not suggesting that we just somehow um, become a blank sheet uh, with really nothing going on in our minds whatsoever. The point of letting go of reactivity, letting go of these uh, habitual impulses that sort of push us to say something or do something that's really just a reflex of a certain kind of habit. Letting go of reactivity is about opening ourselves to the capacity to be more responsive. And there are a couple of questions that came up yesterday that we didn't have time to go into. One of them was from uh, Benjamin's iPad. Um, yes, embrace the moment. And so yes, embrace, yes, moment, what do you say? Yes, moment and embrace, not react. How can this be possible if your present moment is witnessing a crime? Okay, let's imagine we witness somebody shoplifting, or worse still, we witness somebody abusing another person. Um, again, the challenge of this practice is to somehow find a source within us whereby we can respond more appropriately to that behavior rather than just blindly reacting. Of course we will react. That's entirely natural. We're bound to do so. And sometimes that natural reaction will be entirely appropriate, in which case uh, the point is to acknowledge that uh, and to follow it through. Uh, but at other times, our reactivity um, is not uh, going to be perhaps so helpful. It might just be panic or fear. Or what, what are they going to think about me if I do that? Or will I get into trouble if I do that? All of those kinds of reactive pat patterns are the ones that are problematic. So I haven't actually been in a situation where I've witnessed a violent crime, but I can imagine that... I would find myself conflicted by reactions that are maybe just my own fearfulness, my own unwillingness to take risks, in which case I would seek to let that go. But there may be other reactions, like the reaction of 
of, of empathy and concern and love that I should follow. These are not a problem. Um, there's a very good example of this in one of the Pali suttas where mindfulness is compared to the guardian at the gateway of the city. And the purpose of the guardian at the gateway, the gatekeeper, if you like, um, is not to keep everybody out, but it's to allow those who are welcome to come in and to not allow those who are unwelcome to come in. And that's the crucial point. So the second task of letting go of reactivity is based upon our capacity to recognize what is not welcome. Panic may not be welcome. But fear may not be welcome. But other reactions that arise, generosity, compassion, these we can welcome in. So in fact, mindfulness functions as uh, the, the ethical arbiter of the moment. To be mindful of what is an appropriate response and to be mindful of what is an inappropriate response. Mindfulness is already making an ethical choice. So we could say the same thing too about another question Charlotte Anstey asked us yesterday. I want to call out the current political establishment in certain parts of the world. You suggesting I need to be more open to their rhetoric and opinion and let go of my opinion? Does that not mean they win? Again, it's a similar response and an entirely understandable one. No, the point is um, not to become a blank sheet with no opinions, to become a sort of empty specs and just rest and stay there. That would be absurd. But at the same time, we have to notice when we find ourselves reacting with my opinions and my views and so forth and so on. To what extent are they, is that just functioning as a kind of ego reinforcement, a defense mechanism, a lazy habit to not have to think more carefully? That's the problem. It could be that the insight, the view, the opinion you have of the situation may be the appropriate one. In which case, of course, we call out politicians for supporting injustice and uh, discrimination and so forth and so on. But coming back to that same point, it's about learning how to let go of what needs to be let go of and learning how to recognize and cultivate those positive responses that can quite naturally arise within us. That's the course of this practice and that's why we need to see how uh, these four tasks uh, are complex and they can only really be understood when you see them as operating uh, together. So I'm not going to say much more about um, the first and the second task um, except when to notice that when we uh, translate them into vows as is being done here uh, you might notice that there's something impossible about these vows. Sentient beings are boundless. I vow to liberate them all. Defilements are inexhaustible. I vow to sever them all. You're actually setting yourself up with something you can never actually achieve. Because if beings are boundless and 
defilements are inexhaustible, there's no way, there's no way you'll ever have sufficient time uh, to liberate them all or settle them all. It ain't going to happen. Uh, the important point, I feel, is that by acknowledging the impossibility of these things, you're not acknowledging your uh, inability to do anything, but you're acknowledging the, the task of facing the suffering of life, of the world, is something way beyond anything that you as an individual can realistically hope to ever achieve. But when you feel that you are called upon by a crisis, uh, by a real challenge in your world, then you also cannot not respond. And this is acknowledging that in these really um, uh, profound uh, global and existential questions, we are called upon to respond, even though we may recognize that our own capacities as an individual may not be sufficient to ever actually resolve the problem to the extent to which we would feel it needs to be resolved. So the third of these vows, which is the one I want to focus on uh, more today, is Dharma gates, whoops, um, Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all. Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all. Now, that at first sight might seem rather distant from the third task, which is that of beholding or seeing the stopping of reactivity. Okay, the first task is to embrace the situation. The second is to let these reactive patterns just be, not to get caught up in them, to let them go. The third task is to notice what happens when those reactive patterns come to a stop. And that stop might be momentary, it might be longer, or it might be even when those reactive patterns are happening, you can still be aware of them in a non-reactive way. And that non-reactive awareness is also uh, an awareness in which you are no longer driven by hatred or fear or desire. So in other words, um, just, bec uh, just because these things are going on in your mind at a given time doesn't mean that you have to be part and parcel of them. You can observe them, you can notice them, and you can do so in a way that is not reactive. And this, I feel, is actually the very heart and core of any mindfulness-based intervention. If we're using mindfulness in healthcare or uh, in a business situation, it all comes down to this, this capacity to uh, open yourself to a non-reactive perspective in which you see what's going on in your mind, you feel what's going on in your body, and yet you are also aware that you're free not to get caught up in that. And it's in this freedom that we practice the third task, which is seeing the stopping of reactivity and coming to dwell in that. And I feel that in 
meditation of all kinds, really. That when, the, when we experience those moments when the mind is, is quietened down, has come to settle, um, has achieved a certain stillness and clarity, we are already experiencing the taste of nirvana itself. Uh, this is the natural nirvana, the democratized nirvana, not the nirvana that Buddhists place on a pedestal more or less out of reach for most ordinary mortals. And I'm going to quote here a, a passage from the Korean uh, Son patriarch Chinul. Chinul was the uh, founder of the monastery in where Martin and I trained. He lived in the, uh, I think, the 12th century. And uh, amongst his writings, we find a text called Straight Talk on the True Mind. And there he says, the sublime essence of nirvana is complete in everyone. There is no need to search elsewhere. Since time immemorial, it has been innate in all beings. So here we get a very clear affirmation uh, that nirvana is already here and now. And we find a passage quite similar to that in the early Pali text as well where the Buddha says that nirvana is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, personally experienced by the wise, not by the wise Buddhists, but by the wise. This experience of an inner stillness, an inner quietness, which is also a clarity, and I would argue a source of ethical courage and risk, is open to us each time our reactivity dies down and we experience those moments of stillness and clarity. But even so, what has that got to do with the vow, Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all. Think for a moment about a gate or a doorway, a door, let's say, a doorway. Surely that is a, uh, uh, an empty space. A gateway is um, uh, framed by a little and pillars, but it itself uh, is nothing. The, 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 there's nothing in the gateway. It's something through which you can pass. It is, therefore, a kind of emptiness. And nirvana, too, is defined uh, classically in early Buddhism as the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, and the absence of confusion or stupidity. In other words, it, too, is an absence of something. It is uh, like a gateway. It's an opening. It allows possibilities. It allows certain ways of thinking, certain ways of speaking, certain ways of responding to the world. It gets our attachments and fears and likes and dislikes out of the way, at least temporarily. In meditation, I think it's important to uh, honor and valorize 
these moments of nirvanic openness. We do this in Zen, we do this in Vipassana, and in Zen I think we might see this as those moments where we're able to ask this question, what is this? And then just come to rest in an open, unfabricated space and simply wait and listen. In that moment, we are indeed beholding the stopping of reactivity. Questioning is for me very much the opposite of reactivity. It's something that opens up the space we are in as a mystery rather than defines the space we are in according to some opinion or some view or some belief that we have. And then that tends to close it down. If we translate this into the ethical sphere, then every situation in life I would argue, is potentially a Dharma gate. In other words, each life moment we find ourselves in affords possibilities. If we close it down by having fixed opinions and views about it, or if we become attached to it, or we reject it, we've somehow prevented it from being a Dharma gate. But every situation, every state of mind is something that can be turned into um, a vehicle for our own um, uh, development, for our own awakening, for our own clarity of mind, our own understanding. So when the text says Dharma gates are numberless, I vow to learn them all, I think what it's saying is that every, the situations in life are numberless. In other words, there are an endless range of possible situations I can find myself in, even in the course of a single day. How can I imaginatively transform each such situation into what we might call a learning opportunity, rather than something we see as a problem or something that's uh, something we want to become attached to and just holds tight and firmly to. Instead, every situation can be an opportunity for uh, our own transformation. As I was saying yesterday, and I think even the day before, um, you know, the questions were coming up like, you know, but what if I feel sleepy? But what if I feel angry? What if I feel bored? And again, the habit is to feel that in those moments, I can't really meditate. But if we were to turn the sleepiness, the boredom, the anger, the frustration into a question, if we could ask ourselves, but what is it that is bored? What is it that is angry? Then that life situation has become a Dharma gate rather than a closed door. And that I feel is something very much at the heart of Zen as a living tradition. If you've read some of these old Zen texts, you're probably aware that um, 
that they very often focus in highly specific, highly concrete human situations. Um, you have, I'm just thinking of these off the top of my head, um, there's a, a Zen master called Yun Men, Chinese, ninth century. And he's known for his one word, Zen. And uh, he was once uh, giving a talk, and one of the monks in the audience asks a question. And the question is, what is the highest teaching of all the Buddhas and patriarchs? And Yun Men's answer was, cake cake now you may not think that's a terribly illuminating answer but i feel that it points very much to what i'm trying to say here your man is not interested in what is the highest teaching of the buddhas and the patriarchs that's something that we might be very keen to know and we might even think there is such a thing or we might be told there is such a thing and of course, that's what we want. We want the highest teaching. That's what we'll go and travel across the world to hear. What Yunmen is saying is that the situation that is facing you right now is the highest teaching of the Buddhas and the patriarchs, which leads me to think that there must have been maybe a little table with a plate with some cakes on it in front of his uh, lectern, and he basically just turns the audience's attention to that. The immediacy of what is actually happening in this moment, in this Dharma hall, in this teaching, in response to your question, pay attention to that. Or another one, um, this is Shao uh, Shu, uh, I think, um, I can't remember now, who says, um, you know, he's asked the question, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? Bodhidharma, we met on our first talk, uh, the Indian founder of the Chano Zen tradition. And he came from India, he came from the West, and someone wanted to know why. And uh, Chao Chu's answer was the oak tree in the courtyard. The oak tree in the courtyard. In other words, drop that kind of speculative inquiry, however interesting it might be to go into Bodhidharma's motives for coming to China. What Bodhidharma was really concerned about was how do I confront the situation I find myself in now? And again, we must imagine that in the courtyard of the monastery, there was probably an oak tree growing. That's being pointed out. Pay attention to what's in front of your nose. Don't get caught up in these kinds of speculations. So this brings us to the, uh, so to the, uh, the, the, the fourth of these vows, which in a way is, is relatively straightforward. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, which again is arguably a piece of Buddhist propaganda, but let's leave it at that. I vow to realize it. So in other words, the fourth task, which is to cultivate the path, the Eightfold Path, um, 
uh, is the fall is 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 some is 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 in a way where all of these practices lead us: the embracing of life, the letting go of reactivity, the learning of these numberless dharma gates. Uh, all of this are all of these are ways whereby we are able to follow a path. And the notion of a path is, uh, again, a very widespread one. Um, Jesus speaks of himself as the way, the truth, and the life. The way, it's the same word. Uh, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the disciples of Jesus don't call themselves Christians, they call themselves followers of the way. Taoism uh, simply means wayism. Tao just means path or way. Uh, there's another. Now I mentioned there's another koan of Zhao Shu where a monk comes to him and says, um, "Where is the great way?" And Zhao Shu answers, I'll paraphrase slightly. Oh, you turn left and it's the second on the right. In other words, to get out of this habit of generating these fascinations with these large abstracts and spiritual ideas and instead get your feet back on the actual ground on which you're walking now. And the Buddha's way is not some remote uh, spiritual practice, it's actually how we live in this world here and now. And again, it's something that is endless, I would argue. It's something that is not concerned with reaching some final goal, becoming fully enlightened or whatever it might be. But the practice of the way is the practice of taking the next step in your life, in the life of an ordinary person, uh, not in some uh, theoretical manner or symbolic manner at all. So I'd like to leave us with these four vows. Um, I hope that uh, you may find them inspiring. Uh, you may even at times wish to reflect on them, perhaps even to recite them at the beginning or at the end of a meditation session. But I myself have found them a very important uh, uh, development of this notion of the four tasks turning the tasks into vows and thereby recognizing how this practice is founded on a certain ethical commitment. There's a couple of questions left over from yesterday that I will um, first um, um, uh, address. And um, uh, then I'll go through the questions that are coming up on the chat feed now. So if you have a question, uh, please don't hesitate to, um, to, um, uh, to, to write it up. Uh, on asking what is this, I seem to teeter between awe and pointlessness, and I do not find the latter a grateful or positive, graceful probably, or positive place to be. Well, good, fine, okay, um, but Ask yourself, you know, what is this pointlessness? Who is experiencing pointlessness? Again, don't get bogged down in pointlessness. 
would think of pointlessness as yet another Dharma gate. And how can I turn that into an experience um, that might actually lead me to greater understanding about myself, about this practice? And also to have what one Zen master called the long enduring mind. And this is, this is a, a capacity to acknowledge that there are periods in meditation practice, not just in Zen, but in any meditation practice, where you, 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 you go through a kind of a dark, rather uh, bland period of practice. And the great temptation, of course, is just to sort of give up and do something else. But to recognize that if we really are to take seriously the notion of embracing life, in its totality, that doesn't mean that we embrace just the bits like awe, which we find kind of inspiring, but it also means to embrace pointlessness and boredom, uh, meaninglessness. These are also just as much part and parcel of what constitutes our experience as human beings. It's, it's interesting that, again, you set up a polarity, awe, which is presumably something good, and pointlessness, which is something not good. And what we want to do so often, and it's quite natural, is to, is, is to only stay with the things we like. And the things we don't like, no, nah, I don't like that. No, 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 I don't want to be here. But that's, again, giving in to a reactive pattern, a reactive pattern of dislike or aversion. Try to expand your meditation to be able to embrace and include pointlessness as much as awe and wonder and have the long enduring mind to sit through these patches where nothing much seems to be going on for you. What's your take on enlightenment? Is it a metaphor or a real state attainable for some of us? Um, okay. Uh, I'm sure all of us uh, listening here are very familiar with the word enlightenment. Any Buddhist uh, setting will be throwing in this word. I don't think it's a particularly good translation. Um, it seems to suggest a, sort of a moment of light flashing off in your mind and you're getting access to some deep inner truth, and that's called enlightenment. But the word bodhi would be better translated as awakening. It's about a kind of waking up. And it's not so much a state, but a process. My own um, canonical uh, basis for what I understand as awakening uh, goes back to the first discourse of the Buddha, and in which he uh, draws the conclusion at the end of the text. He says, it was not until my knowledge and vision was entirely clear about the uh, the four uh, about uh, having recognized, performed, and mastered the four tasks that I could consider myself fully awake. So, in other words, this enlightenment or awakening, and that's the term being used here, being fully awake, uh, that refers not just to gaining some privileged insight into the nature of reality. In fact, that's, uh, I think, from the Buddhist point of view, was never meant as his 
understanding of enlightenment or awakening. But awakening, as is quite clearly expressed here, has to do with the mastery of a complex set of tasks. And that doesn't mean a mastery that um, is somehow passive. You've got a certificate on your wall saying, mastered enlightenment. But actually, it's the mastery of a particular way of being in the world. Being in the world in such a way that you're able to embrace the totality of what's going on in a situation, to let go of your negative reactive patterns, to see their stopping, which is to dwell in this nirvanic space, this dharma gate, and to cultivate a way of life. And if we understand awakening like that, for which we have very good uh, foundations for being able to uh, think of it that way, then um, the notion that... uh, uh, it's a real state attainable for some or others becomes somewhat uh, 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 less interesting. It's a project, it's a process, and we are the work in process that we wake, that we awaken to. And so I feel the Zen teachings um, in many ways are uh, uh, acknowledging this quality of leading a wakeful life as being far more important than privileging certain moments of insight. Unfortunately, in in some Zen traditions, you do have the sense that the whole point of the practice is to break through into some vision of reality called Satori or Kensho, and that's what really matters. But actually, the Satori, the Kensho, are really just describing the third task, seeing the stopping of reactivity coming to dwell in that emptiness of reactivity. That is not the goal of the practice in the broadest sense. That is simply a crucial moment, a kind of a hinge, a turning point, where we move from a life of reactivity and habit into a life of responsiveness, imagination, creativity and care. I've never done Zen before, and this is a brilliant retreat. Good. However, I'm very nervous about where I go now. Is there anything you would recommend? Is there any thought to continue these sessions every week, every month? Well, it's easy to answer the last bit. So far, there is not any intention to continue these sessions as much as uh, both we and you may have enjoyed them. But where can we go next? Well, that's a good question. I'm afraid I don't really have an answer for that too. Um, This Korean form of Zen that we've been teaching is not very widespread uh, in Europe or in the United States. Um, And uh, there are many other groups, though, that uh, do offer Zen training and Zen practice. And I think all I can say, really, is to maybe check out what's going on. On the other hand... Uh, Both Martine and I and Tony have found that this particular practice of Zen we've been teaching here uh, fits very comfortably with a practice of mindfulness or a practice of Vipassana. And personally, rather than get involved in an East Asian Buddhist tradition, that may be great, but it might also give rise to other problems. See if you can integrate this element of questioning and inquiry this what is this, into the practice you already do. 
So if you do a mindfulness practice or vipassana or something else, when the mind gets still, when the mind gets quiet, bring the question in. And what you might find, as I find, to be honest, is that once you get used to this kind of questioning, it starts to happen by itself. You don't have to sort of consciously introduce a form of words that maybe some of you find a little artificial in some sense. It's about getting in touch with the quality or the sensation, the feel of inquiry and perplexity that um, informs and infuses uh, all, all kinds of contemplative practice, all forms of meditation. It, particularly if you're finding that just being mindful of your breath or being mindful of sounds or something is, is somehow getting a little flat, bring in this question. What is it that hears? What is it that breathes? What is this? I find that it has a kind of a wake-up effect. It can, it can stimulate you. Some of you might have found this in doing this practice. So it's not necessary, I think, to go off and try and find some Zen monastery in Japan, although that might be a good step, depending on who you are and what your resources are and your interests are. But to try to gather what the, the, the real heart of this uh, exercise is, this practice of what is this, and see how you can integrate it into the practice you already have. Are precepts slash refuges dogma in your view? Um, no, they're not. Um, I don't think of them as the same either. Precepts, let's say, for example, the five Buddhist precepts, are really just moral guidelines. I think they can become dogmatic if they come to be considered to be legalistic um, uh, um, prescriptions you know I must not kill I must not steal I must not do this I must not do that and we try to run our ethical life according to these don'ts don't do this don't do that don't do the other then I think they become the moral equivalents of dogmas I think what is uh, quite uh, central to the practice of this path um, as we've been describing it here, is to acknowledge that when we are able to be with an ethical situation with, uh, without all our habitual opinions, including our attachment to the five precepts, then we're called upon to respond to the situation uh, in an ethical way, but not in line with some rule book like the Buddhist precepts, but rather in terms of what we can find within ourselves in terms of, of understanding, wisdom perhaps, compassion and care. Can we respond to that situation in the most caring, loving, kind, empathetic way? And that is not something that any rule book, any set of precepts, can somehow legislate for. That's the problem with any kind of legalistic morality, be it the Talmud, be it the Buddhist Vinaya, be it the Ten Commandments. These are useful frameworks, but they, one must be very careful not to take them as uh, final 
prescriptions for human behavior. They may work at times, but at other times, you may find that the appropriate response to the situation is not one that actually fits neatly with your precepts or your vows. You may need to step out of the moral box and become independent in your ethical response to the situation at hand. This is, I feel, what the Buddha meant when he said that the person who enters the stream has let go of the fetter of moral rules. Silabata is let go of moral rules. Once we find this inner freedom uh, in our practice, that's not just a spiritual freedom. It's an ethical freedom. It's the finding of autonomy. The Buddha often says this. He says you become independent in your practice. And an independent practice is also an ethically autonomous practice, one in which you judge uh, the situation in terms of your own lights and concerns and compassion, and you risk responding in the way that you deem appropriate for that unique occasion. So that's how I understand dogma there. Uh, refuges, I think, are really just a way of describing how our lives can become reoriented to uh, alternative sets of values. Uh, in the Buddhist frame, that is the value of being awake, the value of the Dharma, and the value of being supported by a community, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I don't think there's anything dogmatic about unless you hold certain dogmatic views as to what the true dharma is or the highest dharma is, uh, and you have ideas about enlightenment and so on. But if you take them as broad uh, uh, principles in which you can orient your life, then I think uh, you no longer need to think of them in dogmatic ways at all. Um, during Martin's sit and memory, some find a spiritual taboo came up. Sometime last year, I ate four grams of psilocybin mushrooms. I felt the universe was held together by love, by love and felt deeply in love with my close friends, but was rudely jolted when I thought I had become a unit. Long story. Um, da, 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 da. Um, uh, at times, this, uh, I'm sorry, it's a bit of a long story. Um, if we're trying to achieve creative potential in our lives, why aren't we all consuming and where are we going with this? Seemed relevant to your talk yesterday. Um, this is a long story um, and I don't particularly want to get into it here. Um, in my recent book, The Art of Solitude, this is a good moment to plug this book, uh, The Art of Solitude, Yale University Press, available now in uh, Europe as well as in the United States. I discuss my own uh, recent uh, explorations with uh, peyote and ayahuasca. And um, I think uh, an answer to your question would perhaps best be found there rather than in the remaining three minutes we have here. This is from Matt Harper's Prime. The Buddha's way is endless. Why do you think the sutta speaks so much about arhats, done what is needed to be done, etc.? 
Well, again, um, it's true that you find in the early Buddhist texts the uh, notion of the arhant. The arhant literally means the worthy one. And very often this is presented as a person who has come to the very end of their practice, has achieved some kind of final enlightenment and perfection, and will no longer be subject to being reborn in the world again. That's the Buddhist dogmatic version of it. My own sense is that um, uh, Arhant is simply a kind of an ideal, a bit like Buddha is a kind of ideal. Um, it doesn't necessarily represent some definitive state of human existence, but rather it sets up a model uh, that we might seek to emulate in our own lives. So again, I'm not too interested in whether there are arhants and Buddhas and what they're actually like and what their mental processes must be and how they feel as well. That's again a bit like why did Bodhidharma come from the West? The important thing is in our practice to um, find a, a framework within which we can include uh, images, symbols, or perhaps living personalities. Um, who have served as an inspiration for us in our lives. And I think we do this quite naturally anyway. Uh, we have certain kind of heroes or heroines. We have role models, uh, whether we're conscious of that or not. And I think it does help to become more conscious of that because it helps us ask the deepest ethical question, namely, wh what is the kind of person I aspire to be? Ethics to me is about learning how to become the best possible version of oneself. And that is a practice that we're called upon to do in every situation we find ourselves in life. And the Arhant or the Buddha or the Bodhisattva or the Christ figure or the Taoist sage, these are simply um, uh, collective images, archetypes, if you wish, uh, that enable us to reflect on what might be the optimal version I can think of as possible in my life. So I would prefer to look at it like that. Um, um, Yun Men also responded to that question of ultimate teaching, an appropriate response that we seek to arrive at that we seek to arrive at an appropriate response in every moment as each moment emerges, the situational ethic. How does one do that? I see it as a variety of modalities, including meditation, intellectual study, dialogue with others, physical activity, etc. Can you comment? Yeah, I'll, we'll actually, I think, have to end on this point. But it, it's true that Yun Men, uh, the one who said cake, in another, in a reply to a very similar question, as Brian points out, um, was asked, what is the highest teaching of the Buddha or something? And he said, an appropriate statement. That's a teaching uh, that I found enormously helpful. And it, it somehow undercuts the habit of mind that wants there to be a definite highest teaching, something I can really hold on to. And instead, the highest teaching when it's being turned around by your men, becomes whatever is the most appropriate response to the situation you find yourself in. Uh, and this, I think, also matches very well with the idea 
the Buddha has of thinking of the Dharma as a kind of medicine, a kind of medical treatment. Um, it's like saying, what is the best kind of medicine? It's a stupid question, because it depends on what it is you have to treat. So what is the best medicine is the medicine that's appropriate for the problem you have at the moment. There is no such thing as the best medicine, just as there is no such thing as the best teaching. It all it depends on the situation. It's a situational ethic, as we say. And I also agree with Brian that this uh, appropriate response is not just in terms of our um, interactions with others or with ourselves. It also has to do with the different modalities that we might pursue in our lives. I'm a writer. I make art. Um, I do all kinds of other things. And in each case, I can ask myself, what's the most appropriate way in which I can use my art, my writing, to respond to the situation at hand? We might be musicians. We might be pianists. What is the most appropriate response from myself as a musician? the music I compose, to respond to the kinds of situations we find ourselves in in the world today. But I'm afraid we have to leave, uh, the, we have to leave each other now. Um, I've enjoyed speaking to you very much. It's been an ex interesting experiment to run this retreat online. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.